0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A Living History Production.
1: I'm Peter Hart.
0: And I'm Gary Bain.
1: And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History podcast.
0: Hello, 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 hello and welcome, and welcome to this sweet podcast which comes from uh, Pete's luxurious uh, home in Finchley. Uh, I'm not quite sure why the curtains are closed, Pete, or why you're wearing chaps.
1: I just feel like I need to... <laughs>
0: It's a bright sunny day, so we're doing this in the dark today, aren't we, Pete? Yeah,
1: well, well we're all, a lot of our <laughs> listeners have said that we're often in the dark. And what are we covering today? <laughs> well, we're covering... Uh, the, the, it's funny what, what happened. We were looking for something that gave us a chance to use our accents and use the sense of humour for which we're so justly renowned. Sense. yes, yeah, sense, <laughs> <laughs> And our sense <laughs> is. And uh, what we did, we, we, we've been, as you as you may remember we have been writing a book called Laugh or Cry about the experiences of British soldier in the Great War and looking at how they got through it by using humour. And we found that we had loads of spare material we couldn't cram in. And so uh, we're going to do a couple of episodes on, on the offcuts. Oh, so, <laughs> so, so this is the outtakes version. This is the outtakes before it comes out. All right, okay. and this one is on uh, recruitment and conditions uh, of a British soldier sometime 1914-18 that's all it is and, and it isn't really academic or technical but it's just some great stories that show the funny side except for the first quote which has got no humour or sense of anything I don't know why it's there and most of the others most of the others are pretty dull as well yeah. <laughs> having advertised it to the best of our ability also if you don't like accents please why don't you just
0: Turn over and do something else. Yes, that's
1: it. <laughs> that's just what I was going to say. So, uh, where are we, Gary? Well, the uh,
0: the British Expeditionary Force, yeah. Oh. that's
1: yes, I've it,
0: heard of that. It was uh, it was a small but well-trained regular force of initially only four infantry and one cavalry division that was thrown into a continental battle for which it was not
1: prepared. No, it wasn't, was it? It, 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 I mean, there's about, what, uh, uh, 200 French divisions, uh, 200 German divisions, smashing seven bells out of each other on the Western Front. And uh, our little uh, force doesn't, you know, quality does not make up for quantity in this particular case. Um, Now... The, the attitude of the, when, when war was declared, and funnily enough the first couple of quotes uh, are just setting the scene really, uh, a lot of them must have thought, what, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen to me? Uh, I think they have one thing, soldiers usually have one thing, what's that?
0: Well, I have a, a, a natural confidence in her own fighting abilities. Did you have
1: a natural confidence in your own fighting abilities when you were a soldier?
0: I had a natural confidence in all my abilities, which was um, very quickly demonstrated to be <laughs> overconfidence. in You were most disabused cases. of that confidence. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, some of them were aware that actually it might not be easy.
1: And this is, you're going to be Lieutenant uh, Roland Owen of the Second Duke of Wellingtons.
0: Or Duke of Wellington.
1: Oh, well, you've got to do it as the Duke of Wellington, then. Come on. Eddie, it appears to me that things have now come to
0: such a pitch that we cannot now abstain from joining in the war and still hold up our heads in honour. In fact, if we stay out, whoever wins, we shall presumably take it in the neck soon. The war will be a terrible business, though,
1: won't it? Now, he's a regular in the army, the Duke of Wellington, as we now know him, poor old Roland uh, Owen. Um, but... Um, as they mobilise, they call up all the reservists. Now, this is always funny, to not funny, but there must be a lot of tragedies, a lot of, because people, a lot of old, so, I mean, I'm looking at you. Well, if you were a reservist <laughs> and you were called up, I think there might be one or two fitness issues. I'm, I'm just glancing at you. Well, there's also the fact that soldiers never complain, and I should imagine that some of
0: them were um, uncomplaining quite a lot about suddenly being <laughs> called back to the colours. So now, who am I going to be? You're going to be Private Edward Rowe of the 1st East
1: Lancashire Regiment. They're a fine body of men. Fine body of men. Now, where's East Lancashire? Oh, what's a Lancashire accent sound like? Duke Wellington. Oh, I'll go for that. Fifteen pairs of critical eyes. (laughs) He's a pirate. (laughs) (laughs) He's a pirate. Fifteen pairs of critical eyes were directed on me simultaneously to see how I was taking it. That's the call-up notice. Would I break down and cry? Would I start blubbering because I was going to be killed? Well, I did not start to cry neither did I blubber. I was quite cheerful. I told them it would be over in six months, and that I would consider myself lucky if I could get a shot at jerry before it was all over. Tom, the blacksmith, stated that it would last, not last three months. How could it last longer with millions of Prussians on one side and the French, English, and Belgians on the other side? We'd go through them like a dose of salt. Well, <laughs> let us hope so. Mm, mm, mm. Now, some were more
0: concerned, and though a few, in trying to escape the call up, had the, uh, I think we'll use the word audacity, to conflate. Their wife with farmyard animals, well, and I'm uh, going. Hang on, <laughs> what does conflate mean? Um, <laughs> That's a bit posh for you, Gary. Can, compare and contrast, I think, and oh, uh, and equal the two.
1: Sort of, um, yes, and ooh, and sort of confuse. Generally, right? You're going to be. Uh, well, this is this is a quote. From 2nd Lieutenant Robert Graves, who was at this time at Wrexham Depot with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. As it's Graves, it's probably totally untrue, but we love this story, don't we? It's probably one of our favourites.
0: Robert Probert came from Anglesey and had joined the special reserve in peacetime for his health. In September, the entire battalion volunteered for service overseas, except Probert. He refused to go and could be neither coaxed nor bullied. Finally, he came before the colonel whom he genuinely puzzled by his obstinacy. Probert explained, I'm not afraid, Colonel, sir, but I don't want to be shot at. I have a wife and pigs at home.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, Gary, that, look, no, yeah, what, now, I'm looking at you now, a fine figure of a man. What problems might you have if you were suddenly called back to army service now? Right.
0: Right. Well, there's the obvious ones. Boots would be too heavy because you're not used to wearing them again. Uh, uniform at that time would be itchy, very itchy. Drill was uh, probably too boring. and,
1: and, and after, after civilian life.
0: Yeah, know. and there, there was too much shouting. You know, the, those horrible salt majors, they they'd not give you I'll the old you so.
1: rollicking every now and again. You might actually miss your wife and pig, won't you?
0: You might. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> most of them knew... From long and bitter experience, that uh, defiance was futile, and you got a knuckle under. I found that out the hard way, frankly.
1: <laughs> now there are exceptions, and we we turn once again to one of our favourite ludicrous sources, which is Robert Graves. He's a, he's a wonderful raconteur, uh, and and in this case, he, he he this is a case of defiance by a young returning soldier, uh, and he it's a sort of it was brought to the battalion orderly room in August nineteen fourteen at the depot, Wrexham depot. And Robert Graves presents it as a sort of mini theatrical performance with uh, stage directions, dialogue and noises off. Now, you're going to perform this to the best of your ability and I believe you're going to employ something like four or five different accents, many of which... Or one. Many of which you're going to muddle up, are you? Yes. <laughs> uh, so this
0: is 2nd Lieutenant Robert Graves, Wrexham depot, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and he says... The sergeant major off stage. Now then, you devious. Cap off. As you were, cap off. As you were, cap off. That's better. Escort and prisoner. Right turn. Quick march. Right wheel. On stage. Left wheel. Mark time. Escort and prisoner. Halt. Left turn. The colonel. Read the charge, Sergeant major. Sergeant major. Gary L. do at Wrexham on 20th August, in proper conduct. Committing a nuisance on the Barrett Square. Witnesses, Sergeant Timmins and Corporal Jones. The Colonel. Sergeant Timmins, your evidence. Timmins. Sir, on the said date about 2pm, I was acting hardly sad. Corporal Jones reported the nuisance to me. I inspected it. It was the prisoner's, sir. The Colonel. Corporal Jones, your evidence. Jones, sir, on the said day, I was crossing the barrack square when I saw the prisoner in a sitting posture. He was committing excreta, sir. I took his name and reported to the orderly sergeant, sir. Colonel, well, Private Davis, what have you to say for yourself? Davis, in a sort of nervous sing song. Sir, I came over queer all of a sudden, sir. I had diarrhea terrible bad. I had to do it, sir colonel but my good man the latrine was only a few yards away davis sir you can't stop nature the sergeant major says don't answer not an with like that there was a pause and sergeant timmins coughs sir colonel yes sergeant timmins sergeant timmins sir i had occasion to examine the nuisance sir and it was done with an effort sir
1: that's a brilliant performance. I'm sure our listeners are, are, are even now applauding around their uh, whatever they listen it to. Um, now, so, th- so they're, they're, this is the reservist thing. Funnily enough, those quotes are in the book, that, that last couple of quotes, because you just couldn't miss them out, could we? Uh, but then we're now moving into new territory for us. And the, the voluntary recruitment is, is, is just bursting forth, isn't it? Uh, bursting forth. And what's this they're raising now?
0: Well, they're they're raising the first 100,000. It was Kitchener's first 100,000, which I think was smashed, wasn't it? And many more were joining joining the Territorial Force Battalions. And you're going to be a, uh, a Mr William Andrews.
1: Men were pouring in, men were ready to sign anything and say anything. They gave false names, false addresses, false ages. They suppressed their previous military service or exaggerated just to seem to promise them best. Recruits had to sign as fast as they could. They did not trouble to read their papers. Whether our motives were to defend Britain, see the war, or get free food. <laughs> We bundled ourselves into the army in those hot, wild days of August 1914. What fun we meant to have! What fun!
0: Yes, and false accents by the sound of that one. Yes, I'm not quite sure where he was from, people. Where was he from? Oh, he was from Cornwall, right, okay. Now, many tried to join underage, and they're, they're, this included one 13 year old, and I'm going to be George Mayer. And he says. I'd already tried to join up once at a recruiting office in Preston. Oh, in Preston.
1: It's all right. I like the underage sound.
0: I had borrowed a suit of my father's turning up the trousers. But as I got halfway up the steps to the office, somebody cuffed me behind the neck and gave me a kick up the backside. Go home to your bloody mother,
1: a voice said. I turned and saw a police sergeant, a friend of my father's fabulous he then you you gary or this george runs away from home and presents himself to a recruited sergeant in lancaster he was just 13 and he got in without any question whatsoever ah fine well set up lad like you you get in the army anytime uh and uh, by the time he was 14 he was in france uh, well,
0: before he was 43, three months short of his fourteenth
1: birthday, he was in France. It? Yeah, it's absolutely.
0: Now, intent as they are in, in filling the army's ranks, recruitment sergeants frequently turn a blind eye to the age of young lads eager to enlist. And many were allowed to join one or even two years below the required minimum. Now, one such uh, was Harold Hayward uh, on the 15th of September 1914. And you're going to be Harold
1: I went down to Coastland Hall with the hope of enlisting the newly formed battalion by the city called Bristol's Own, official title 12th Battalion, the Gloucestershire Regiment. I went to the recruiting table, and the recruiting sergeant was there. I I knew that the age of enlistment was nineteen, so it was no good me telling the truth. I would say I was nineteen instead of seventeen and a half, but I wasn't asked how old I was. I was asked, "When were you born?" Okay, I'll give you answer, I'll give them throughout my life. 12th of February, 1897. Gong! <laughs> the recruiting sergeant said, Well, I don't know. I, I don't know whether we can take you at that age. He must have seen my sad look. And he said, But if you go outside the Colston Hall, run round the building three times, you'll be three years older when you come back. That was a good enough hint for me. When I came back, he, he said, How old are you? And I said, Twenty So that got me into the battalion. Another range of accents, showing my natural acting talent, I feel. Yeah. I'm so pleased that those who don't like us doing accents are buggered off and aren't listening. <laughs> because they'd be foaming at the mouth by this time.
0: Now, army medicals varied greatly in how rigorous they were. Uh, uh, Ivor Hansen uh, had his after-attending the Card... Oh, God. The Cardiff Recruiter. <laughs> <like this>. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. And I'm going to be Ivor Hansen. <laughs> The first doctor examined my teeth and I guess I scored full dental marks. For some weeks ago, I purposely had some decayed teeth extracted. A doctor tested my heart and lungs and on one memorable occasion asked me to cough. Now I had the cough and drop in 1977-78 uh, and um, it could be quite embarrassing. I seem to remember there was a nurse in the room and uh, I just was thinking this could, this could all go terribly wrong. Now, he says... You don't have that problem anymore, dear. Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs>
1: Flaccid Gary, they call you. <laughs> A doctor tested my heart
0: and lungs and on one memorable occasion asked me to cough. I was A1 in all those respects too. He had two then, if he's A1. <laughs> Eventually, each candidate was perfectly nude, and while waiting for my examiner to make entries on my documents, I saw some of the sights of my lifetime, (laughs) for the final test was a march by each candidate in the nude, up and down the room before Major Lucas, chief of the medical board. Short and tall, lean and fat, and some pot-bellied, all did their unique parade, proving for me conclusively that clothes add to the appearance and dignity of most men nowadays."
1: How true that is to this very day um now doctors could be somewhat cruel or, or should you say blunt <laughs> in their assessments on that you know what they write on the recruitment documentation and i'm going to be private arthur dolby of the 15th west yorkshire regiment oh god i should be able to do that i'm from chesterfield um, this is near now. Luton. yeah all right Aye. He looked at me and he says, uh, Sallow complexion, prominent nose, on right cheek. Before he'd done with me, I, I, I felt a bit like Frankenstein. And he says, initials. I says, F.A. He says, you're going to have trouble <laughs> with that. F.A. In the army doesn't sound for your initials. <laughs> what does it sound for, Gary? I've never been in the army. Flipping ack. Flippin' ack.
0: I couldn't think of another A-word. Fripping arse. <laughs> now, similar scenes uh, are being enacted in uh, Australia and Canada. We're not
1: really covering Australia and Canada, this, but this quote was just so funny that I, we couldn't resist putting it in the podcast. So you're going to do a Canadian accent. I'm not. For, it's uh, going
0: to be you, Pete. I knew that. <laughs> and well, you're I, going to be Herbert... It says me! <laughs> yes, we've written it down. Lord. I'm you're not doing to, a
1: Canadian accent, I can't. You're going to
0: be Herbert Dalton bolster.
1: Once I was young and handsome, that's Australian, (laughs) and laid claim to an intelligence which permitted me to hold intercourse with beings fashioned just a little lower than the angels. I was almost human in my actions and tastes. I was said by some to possess a temperament, whatever that may be. I claimed a, a, a little originality and considered myself someone. I washed twice or three times a day and wore clothes which might have been said to fit. But behold me now! I am become a portion of Canada's gift to the Empire. I am a full private in the army. I have not even a name. How have the mighty fallen? <laughs> he hadn't been in Canada long, then. No, he just come home from Australia.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Now, once in, they're issued with a uniform and kit, although the pressure of numbers caused delays, so many were given blue uniforms to tide them over before they got their khaki. Now, this triggers the appalling, uh, following appalling doggerel. Now, this is a, a poem, and I'm going to read this. Uh, it's by... Well, you
1: are a poetry corner expert.
0: It's by J.L. Hardy of the 17th Highland Light Infantry. So he, he obviously, is from Edinburgh, he's got a... English accent. And this is called The Khaki and the Blue We were quite the smartest lot that Kitchener had got to see his bit of business carried through Indisputably chic, our appearance was unique, while still we wore our uniforms of blue And if on pleasure bent, no matter where we went, our appeal was irresistible when dressed The clothes were quite enough to attract a bit of fluff, and our captivating manner did the rest Unfortunately, though, resistance to the foe necessitates less visible attire. However nice the blue, in spectacular review, it's rather too attractive under fire. Accordingly, one day, a change to, in our array, the new phenomenon was duly fitted on. Oh,
1: great lyricist.
0: But the khaki left us critically cold. As contrasted with the blue, its merits were but few. Its deficiencies were great and manifold. So humbly, so humbly we submit, since the car key doesn't fit.
1: Yeah, it often didn't fit, did it? And I'm going to be Private Ernest Aldridge, 2nd Welsh Regiment. I was a boy of 17 years old. The uniform I was given was made for someone of about 28 stone. Gary? <laughs> I didn't know whether I was inside or outside it. If the neck of the car had been a little larger, I'm afraid I would have slipped right through. When we were making a turn, I would be halfway round before my uniform would start to move. Which was all which always worried my drill instructor because I would never be in line with the other fellows. <laughs> you I can imagine the, that, can't I you? Little
0: head turning around in the uniform. Uh, now Accommodation at the Barracks of Depots was crammed to the brim, and I'm going to be Private Tom Price of the 13th what? Welsh Regiment. Why
1: are we doing this to ourselves with all these Welsh quotes?
0: Well, it's Welsh, so he's obviously English. Yeah, right. We were pushed into a big gymnasium hut. It was so crowded that we had to use each other's bodies as pillows to sleep. I'm not sure where he's from. Yeah. <laughs> it was absolutely packed full. The men had all gone down... To to the canteen and got a drop of beer. They came back singing. I was only 17. I was sitting down in a corner there. Somebody was telling jokes. We were laughing. A real old high time going on there. Somebody had pinned a Lance Corporal stripe on a tall chap and when the bugle went lights out, he shouted, go on now, put those lights out and stop this laughing. Nobody took any notice of him and it got worse. Eventually he said, I won't tell you again, put those lights out. Nothing happened he said fall in two men and put that man in the guardroom." that was me i'd been sitting down in the corner with the men and i was laughing with them because it was so funny the things they were saying don't you touch him said the boys around me it just fizzled out it was my first experience of army discipline i'm bound to laugh at it i almost spent my first night in the army in the guard room
1: now you were often
0: in the guard room were yeah. you
1: always innocent in that manner
0: yes I was always innocent. But I was I too would laugh out loud. I'd, I'd once been... Um, I'd, I'd been a lance corporal for a while and I was now private again. And uh, my platoon sergeant called me Corporal Bain and I corrected him and said, no, no, it's Private Bain's son. And he said, I'll call you up the... F- bleeping bleep 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 bleep. I want... You bleep you bleep bleep bleep. bleep 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 bleep. And I found myself on a guard parade. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great stuff. Now, um... They're, they're, they're barracks for everybody barracks or good homes or you know,
0: well, you know, no at that time I mean you know the, the clue is in the first hundred thousand you're bringing in lots the second, third, yeah you're fourth, bringing in fifth, lots th- of new recruits and there simply isn't enough barracks to cope with the influx of, of recruits So many of them find themselves in civilian billets which th- the army hired and you're going to be Corporal Harold Gower of the 2nd 5th Rifle Brigade doesn't say where he's from Pete Thank but God we'll guess that. by the accent.
1: I'm Luton <laughs> when we were in uh, when we were at Norwich, we were at a place called Thorpe. We stopped outside a biggish house, and the captain said, Corporal Gah, take six men, and that's your billet. I picked out six men and we went to the billet. The good lady who owned the house called me in to see her, and she said, I am a friend of Sir John French, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I particularly asked the captain to make sure that he sent me someone that I could trust. I know all the London Rifle Brigade are gentlemen and all that, but I've got a rather flighty mate, and I don't want any nonsense.
0: <laughs> now, so we're all landladies. That nice thing. Yeah.
1: No, no, and you're—it's uh, you. I'm just checking. So I can't seem to read at times. Uh, you're or going speak. to read. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You're going to read a quote from Private George Clarkson. John. John Clarkson of the First Fourth. East Lancashire Regiment. So I want you to sound like our good friend.
0: Now ah, then, she was a nasty woman. There was two of us billeted. The regulations say you should have one man each bed. She put us in a bed and tied a rope to divide it. Instead, we didn't know any different.
1: Place from Lancashire, wouldn't
0: we? Kept to our own boundaries. We managed. She used to say, "Don't think that I'm making a lot of money out of you. She I'm got, not."
1: She's got a deep voice.
0: I says, well, you're not underpaid. I don't know what you're getting, but we're not getting much money's worth out of it. You can't be getting much. One morning, they couldn't blow a rivelle. The neighbours complained, so they sent the fellow round blowing it whistle.
1: Blowing a whistle?
0: Blowing a whistle. Toot, It was cold weather, bitter cold weather. I said, hey, whistle's gone. Come on, get up. It's too cold. I said, it is cold. We'll not go then. So we didn't go on parade. The landlady's listening on the landing. She went to company office and reported that we hadn't been on parade that morning. She came back and she says, Now then, I'll learn you for being so awkward. I've reported you. I says, You what? It's got nothing to do with you. We get fetched up to company office. Absent on parade. Yes, yes, yes. Seven days confined to barracks. I always remembered that woman. What a woman that was! We were glad to get away from that place.
1: Now, So there's uh, there's pressure on uh, on a lot of pressure on uh, accommodation, but there's uh, something else there would be trouble with. What's that?
0: Well, it, it it's it's dissent. I suppose is how you would you would uh, describe it. I'd describe it as problem with food. Oh, I wouldn't. No. No. Because soldiers never complain about the food.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I entirely see what you're saying now.
0: Now, um, you're going to be Captain Raymond Chell of the 10th Essex Regiment. Now, Essex sounds a bit like me, Pete.
1: Now, I like this chap because the the recruits are pouring in, the catering arrangements are breaking down. And, and this bloke, uh, he's a witness to a fantastic method of quelling dissent, which uh, I, I think you experienced for an officer or two.
0: Uh, no one ever complained the entire time I was in the army I I mean let's be clear I I was not deployed at all this was all in training environments nobody ever
1: complained not once well this is Raymond Chell and he says this Captain Heppel explained patiently as he had already done a hundred times before that the war office had sent a thousand men down where none were expected and that he was doing his level best to get them food at the earliest possible moment whoops but the men the crowd sorry but the crowd couldn't understand they wanted a meal and if they didn't jolly well get it there was going to be trouble well boys said the captain if you don't believe that i'm doing my damnedest, i'm ready to fight each one of you in turn until you do there was a silence for a brief moment and and Harry looked at Bill and Bill looked at Harry until someone at the back of the crowd started to laugh. The Hepple, that's the bloke we've been shouting, was looking woefully disappointed that no one accepted the challenge. And the laugh burst into a cheer for the captain and the first and last mutiny of the 10th Essex was over.
0: We went to uh, Trigantle Fort when I was uh, in basic training and um, uh, we were doing abseiling, I seem to think. And the platoon officer and sergeant had had to go check something or other. And while they were away, the rations arrived. So we ate them all, including this, which was really quite popular with them.
1: You are such a naughty soldier. Now, what, what are we now? Now, um, um, what's one truism of army life, would you say?
0: Well, it broadens the vocabulary. It certainly broadened mind and the experience of, of young lads. Um, wow. you know, bear in mind, I, I was 16 years old when uh, I first reported, and, and swearing was certainly uh, endemic. And I'm going to be Private Norman Cliff of the Guards Training Depot in Caterham. One of the traditions of the army startled me. It was the language of the crude and licentious soldiery, apparently obsessed by sex. No sentence was complete without the word fat or tenses thereof, and the result was that the atmosphere became thick with obscenity. It was extraordinary how quickly recruits, most of them accustomed to talk in conventionally polite terms, copied the lurid language of the regular soldiers until it became second nature to them. It came as a shock to a prude like myself, but had to be lived with all day long.
1: Now, one of the celebrated abilities of the British Army from that day to the present is the ability to include the word fuck in, in every, as every part of speech in a continuous flowing sentence, with, which is a, a magical wonderment, isn't it? A magical wonderment.
0: Well, a lot of it did come from the Great World. In, in again, the sort of early 80s, we used to sing a song... Um, And I'm going to try and remember it, Pete. And it went something like this. uh, It's, I don't want a bayonet in me belly. I don't want me bollocks shot away. I'd rather stay at home around the streets to run and live off the earnings of a lady type. Pissed. That's
1: a bit of emphasis on pissed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's lovely. That's brought a, t- a touch of culture to But this that was, podcast. you
0: know, 50, 60 years later. Well, longer. 60 and, uh, years later.
1: I'm going to be Basil uh, Private. Bas- he later became an officer, uh, Basil Peacock. I know that. Uh, uh, of the Royal Fusiliers. Yeah, we should so,
0: say this is not chronological,
1: is it? Isn't. No, no. So, no. Uh, so, so, Ranks will change. Uh, uh, anyway, he says this The soldier who sat next to me had, had been lately been released from jail and still had jail cropped hair. He was a tough little cockney, about my height, addressed as Twig. Quite illiterate, uh, but very talkative. It was distressing to hear him try to express himself with his very small vocabulary, which was mostly made up of uh, four-letter words. Uh, to colour his conversation, he would insert them even between the syllables of words. He would gabble off a sentence such as, and I do apologise to our listeners, I says to fucking corporal when he says to me to scrub the fucking floor. What's the I fucking dear? I was on fucking fatigue yesterday. Fuck he, says I to him. Twig and I got on splendidly after a few <laughs> days. Uh, I liked him for he had a generous nature uh, and he was never surly. <laughs> sounded a bit surly in the quote that he gave <laughs> yeah not complaining now, is he no not complaining at all um do you think uh do you think that uh even uh, you know a posh young lad coming in do you think uh, or a lad with a good background do you think he's he would remain untouched by this
0: uh short answer is no he wouldn't
1: remain until... It. No, mean, it's
0: impossible to. You, are you, you
1: saying that his morals would gradually be eroded away? His, I, his principles of life, those fine principles of Christianity and and, and and abstinence and things like that, they'd erode away?
0: Yes. How are you going to prove that well, statement? I'm going to be Private Stephen Graham at the Guards Depot Caterham. And oh, he yeah. says, don't get annoyed. know the real suffering of the conscript when he first begins to use foul language. The peg is repeated when he first gives way to drink, and if he succumbs, as so many inevitably do, is sexual temptation, <laughs> and if he falls in with the wrong sort of girl. A good soldier, however, can keep away from drink and lust, though he seldom can escape from impurity of language and thought. Of this he feels the pain, and it is part of the suffering he must endure, but I do not think he has the responsibility. The army itself has that. When... The, he begins to use the army's language without willing it. He has ceased to be an individual soldier and has become soldiery.
1: Well, I think he's optimistic. I mean, he's saying, I mean, you're there as Graham saying that you uh, weren't corrupted in your sexual morals, just your language. Well, I think that's not the normal thing. I think uh, soldiers normally took to drink and sex like they took, like, well, a, it's like sex, a horse sex, to water.
0: Certainly when I was in basic training, sex wasn't really available. Um, not, not unless you fancied wardrobes, but um, you know certainly alcohol was available, freely available, and you did, you know, if people around you were swearing, you swore. You, you just responded.
1: Of course in you do. It's uh, peer pressure. Um, uh, now, one thing that's often said is that if the recruits swore, then the NCOs uh, they, they they were there oh. better as well. I mean, <laughs> I, I see fond mem- I see from your face, fond memories just drifted across. And you're going to be Private Norman Cliff again of the Guards Training Depot Caterham.
0: I can't remember how I sounded before.
1: Uh, I think you were. Uh, I think it was the Duke of Westminster. No, I
0: don't think so. <laughs> our idealism, our idealism, suffered a crushing setback at the outset of our military careers. Naturally, I suppose the abuse to which we were subjected not only by Baker, that's which one, I'm of his, his, yeah, one of his training, yeah, his yeah, um, which had sexual connotations, and the inventiveness of the obscenities used seemed to reflect extraordinary twists in the NCO's mental processes. Most frequently, the victim was accused of appearing to be pregnant, and one of the most fantastic remarks favoured by Baker was, You look as if you've just given birth to a pair of hand-painted water jugs." What the Freudian interpretation of that job could be, I have no idea.
1: Oh, I just love, oh. just love that quote. Hand-painted water jugs. <laughs> Oh. Oh, um, now, the role, what, what, your, your experience, so what is the role of the instructor? How do they do it? I mean, well, are they really complete that utter bastards?
0: No, they provide a focus, though, don't they? So they're are they are acting? Yes, they are acting, and they're providing a, a focus of hatred for young re- recruits. They can focus on that one individual. Um, and, and what they're trying to do, they're, they're building uh, teamwork and, and a sharing, but the sharing is a shared loathing. Yeah, shared hatred.
1: So it, they're acting. So there's a sort of character, the drill sergeant, that they all. Yeah, yeah. They all adopt basically this persona, yeah, and
0: they, they actually have the recruits' best interests
1: at heart. Can you believe that of your instructors?
0: Yes, I can now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> at the time, hmm. now I'm going to be Private John Ashby uh, at the Training Reserve Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment, just outside London. Oh God, I can't do a Cockney accent. The sergeant major called to us one night. He said, you're not all bastards. Some of you have got mothers and fathers. According to what I hear, very few of you have written a letter to them. (laughs) All those who have not written, take, wait for it, wait for it, take one pace forward. Nearly all the battalion, including myself, stepped forwards. Right. You don't leave this barracks until there is a letter written to your mother and father.
0: Now, that still went on. I joined the junior leaders uh, battalion. And um, uh, we, it, it, I think it, it wasn't so much the sergeants that, that asked us, but it was uh, uh, the Women's Institute used to come in and, and you know, we'd have tea mornings and things like that. And they would encourage you to write to your parents. I wrote and said, Dad, can I come home? I've made a terrible mistake. And he wrote back, no. No. <laughs>
1: brilliant now you're going to uh officers. officers 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 we don't got much about officers because they're not as funny in some ways but uh, in the early days of the war this is a class-based thing they they from the public schools the rest of it later on it expands uh, now you're going to be uh, james lovegrove a royal irish Fusiliers depot and this is a fairly unique perspective of the qualities that were required to be an officer One day,
0: I was sent for by the Colonel. I'd never seen him up to then. He said, Your sergeant has recommended you. What would you like to be? Ooh, I said, a sergeant. He said, Would you? Do you swear? Oh, no, sir. Your drink? No, sir. Have you got a girlfriend? I said, No, sir. I hadn't even kissed a girl up to then. I was dead scared of girls. I might tell you. Well, he said, I don't know. What the hell is the good of you being a sergeant? The only thing I can think of, my boy, is for you to be an officer. I do love that quote. Oh, dear. Now, there's lots of different perils facing a young officer. Who am I going to be? You're going to be 2nd uh, Lieutenant John Staniforth, who had been himself promoted from the ranks.
1: Yeah, we've we got a couple of quotes later on from him when he's in the ranks. Yeah,
0: yeah uh, the 7th Leinster Regiment.
1: I was casually examining a sword in the anteroom of the mess yesterday when someone uh, innocently suggested, let's have a look at the the blade. (laughs) I pulled it out of the scabbard without thinking and the next thing was gleeful shouts from everybody of drinks all round and was gently informed that the penalty for bearing steel (laughs) in the mess was champagne all round at dinner. And those gangs were still be... I've interviewed lots of officers who were caught by the versions of the same thing. Uh, that is still... Obviously, you wouldn't know this because you weren't... I'd be your, serving the
0: champagne. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but but uh, it, it still goes on. Now, there's many, many different types of officer. Um, and uh, and 2nd Lieutenant Harold Mellish, you're going to be of the 3rd East Lancashire Regiment, and uh, he he was... Uh, he, he found some of the regular officers a little strange. and And... Uh, In no way are we being pejorative about these officers. What I mean is that there were a certain method of behaviour by officers which had become sort of almost traditional, and this refers to one of them.
0: I'm definitely not being pejorative because I don't know what it means. Right. Or if I am, I'm doing it accidentally.
1: (laughs) Well, I'll judge that by your quote. Mm.
0: This is uh, 2nd Lieutenant Harold um, Mellosh. We had half a dozen or so regular captains with us from the 1st and 2nd Battalions. They were handsome and self-confident, and though not arrogant, tended to treat new young subalterns like dirt in the tradition to which they were used.
1: Can I just say it's rare for a subaltern at this time of the, to have an accent like an <laughs> East Lancashire pitman. <laughs> I think you'll find
0: that he, uh, he wanted a sound like that.
1: All right, That was his aim in life.
0: I admired them. Two in particular I admired, the most human and friendly of them. I've read somewhere that Marshall Lyoty held that the attribute he liked best to finding an officer was gaiety and northern accents. These two should have pleased him. They also had personality. They drew attention without effort. They were amusing. These two left us for the front again at about this time, and we all saw them off from the officer's mess. They climbed into their taxi. They joked with mincing affectation they kissed their hands to us. How strange that some men can carry off such silliness with aplomb.
1: How much I wished to be like them. <laughs> Don't worry, Gary, you are. <laughs> right, um, and now there's also, one of the, so that's one sort of the regular officer uh, sort of affected g- g- gaiety of behaviour. Uh, then there's uh, then there's crusty old dugouts uh, and um, uh, Well, me- yeah, you might want to
0: finish that sentence. There's crusty old dugout officers. Oh yes, yeah, as yeah. opposed to crusty old dugouts. <laughs> oh, do now, bother. often men are, are suffering considerable frustrations, and and despite what I say, many of them didn't suffer in silence. Well,
1: and this is this is an officer who is very frustrated. Uh, uh, so I'm going to be Private John Tucker of the Second Thirteenth London Regiment. That's is that the Kensingtons? Yeah, I think it is thirteenth. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I'm going to read this. Colonel Maclean was a rather aged and violently tempered old gentleman. We only saw him on battalion parades and manoeuvres. Thank goodness. <laughs> With his small pointed moustache, he, he reminded me of me, 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 Mephist... Who would he remind you mephist- of? Mephistopheles.
0: Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles. Thank you, Gary.
1: He was, he was always mounted on his horse. And from that vantage point, he would scream at us in a very shrill and terrifying manner calling us all the foul names he could muster up. If he could find no valid excuse for this, he would soon make one up. Woe betide anyone who had the misfortune to go before him on a charge. His sentence was always severe. Probably his irascibility was due to the fact that his advanced age prohibited him from going to France, in spite of his numerous pleas. A lot of these dugout officers were kept at home, and they wanted to go to France. After all, they, in their time, in they may not have been in active service. You could or missed the Boer War. So yeah. After the war, the old rascal took up holy orders. Sorry, <laughs> you shouldn't laugh at your own jokes or things you find funny. The old rascal took up holy orders, and one day the newspaper placards bore the legend in huge type. Clergyman assaults his housekeeper! Clergyman assaults his housekeeper! it. Ian it Clergyman assaults his housekeeper!
0: Strangely enough, my platoon officer, who I would call, let's call him Lieutenant Biscuit, Um, he, he took up holy orders after, after his service
1: as well. Did he assault his housekeeper?
0: I, I'm not aware of that
1: just as well. Right, so what's next? Well, um, how would a day begin for new recruits? Well, 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 I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm back to being this is John Staniforth when he was a private, before his commission in the 6th Connaught Rangers. He just gives us a quick rundown, doesn't he? He says this we get up and pull on our breeches slip up the braces, lace up our boots and struggle into a tunic. Set a cap upon the tumbled hair and the toilet of all but the most fastidious is complete. We cleanse the mouth by the simple and admirable process of hawking loudly and spitting on the floor (laughs) a few however patronize you silly old tap a tap at a sink in the scullery at the rear of the cottage and indulge in a wash if they can face the water which is very cold we wash by holding our head under the tap and turning it on soap is looked upon rather in askance by this time the orderly man for the day has gone to the cookhouse and brought back a pail of hot sweet Which is very welcome, and when we have absorbed this, made our beds and stacked away the blankets, wound up our legs in putties, which, if you take pride in doing it neatly, takes as long as a woman doing her hair. I hope my Polly and your Janet don't hear this because that's grossly sexist.
0: Oh, I don't think so because neither of them have hair. They won't. They won't worry.
1: I hope they don't hear
0: that. (laughs) Now, I also had to do putties, uh, although not up the leg as in the Great War. They were. They were literally round the ankle. You would. Them around putting. the ankle yeah Whatever well, it the same parties but just at the ankle um and we would have ablutions in the morning and a friend of mine who's passed away recently rather sadly um i always remember him at the ablutions he he managed to be able to wash and shave with a cigarette in his mouth which i used to admire the skill from a distance and think how does he do that but yeah, we, we used to, it's very similar in the, in the 70s and 80s. Now, many of the young recruits, they, they embrace this new way of life, don't they? And uh, I'm going to be Private William Holbrook, the Royal Fusiliers Depot, Hounslow Barracks. Oh, great.
1: He was, he was a
0: pre-war Houndslow. regular. He was. Now, he says, there was plenty of swearing. I'd never heard anything like that in my life before. I didn't know the meaning of the words. They'd go with these girls out of the town. They used to come and talk about it. I didn't know what they were talking about. This sex and all that sort of thing. I didn't know anything. It was mysterious. I wanted to find out.
1: I'll bet you did. And I'm going to be Private Edward Pack, uh, 1st Somerset Light Infantry. And he's talking about how he came to enjoy the sort of rough com- comradeship of the uh, the army. Somerset, eh? <laughs> Who <laughs> Oh no. A present parrot life is one of the most amusing things I have ever oops <laughs> I, I have ever struck. The men are so amazingly funny and and they're always so cheery and one or two of them have got such priceless laughs that you can't help laughing too. There are some perfectly filthy rhymes written up in the rears. What's that, Gary?
0: That's uh, the latrines, Pete.
1: To while away the time spent striving with your insides.
0: I've just realised some people might not know what latrines are. So, latrines is toilets. Oh, yeah. So, rears are latrines and latrines are
1: toilets. Right. Now, um... Uh, because when they went for their food as we, we've already had one quote about that in the paper. the 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 food's going to be pretty simple and it was for you the food doesn't change a lot no but
0: it? It, i mean i always found the food really good they they would work out your your calorie requirements you know it, it was thought about and when i was uh, in the army often you'd find that the chefs would be in competitions uh so you you know you would suddenly get Salmon, for example, because they needed to practice how to cook it, because they'd be doing it at some function later in the week.
1: Well, this is very. Diff- that's with the army. You had the army catering corps. Yeah, also, army catering corps. And that, that was. In fact, I interviewed the bloke who founded it, whose name Hoptro. Um, but this is that was after the Second World War. This is in the First World War, and they were run off their feet, and they couldn't cope with all the numbers. And you're going to give an illustration of this from Gunner Frederick Voigt of the Royal Garrison Artillery.
0: We held our plates while a soldier in a grimy uniform ladled cabbage, meat and a greasy liquid under them. We sat down on benches in front of tables and were littered with potato peel, bits of fat and other refuse. We were packed so closely together that we could hardly move our elbows. The rowdy conversation, the foul language and the smacking of lips and the loud noise of guzzling added to the horror of the meal. I was so repelled that I felt sick and could not eat. The man who sat opposite kept me under close observation. All at once he asked, Don't you want it, mate? I said, No. Whereupon he exclaimed eagerly, Giss it. A bestial gloating came into his face as he seized my plate and splashed the contents onto his own so that the gravy overflowed and ran along the table in a thin stream. He took the piece of meat between his thumb and his fork and, tearing off big shreds with his teeth, gobbled them greedily
1: down. Now, that's a common experience. This is uh, uh, Private Basil Peacock, uh, who's then with the Royal Fusiliers. We had amongst us uh, an elderly Billy Bunter, nicknamed Stug from Guts Backward. He was a slow-moving, stolid chap in his late thirties. He had an insatiable appetite and was always first at the mess table and last away as he used to finish all the scraps of food he could find, including those from other men's plates. Sometimes our food was almost uneatable but never to stug. <laughs> one day, being mess orderly, I was waiting to clear up the table and I watched him eat 16 kippers. The rations of 16 men who after one taste had all declared them rotten. They were stinky to high heaven. Wow. Uh, now, what do you think might happen if you eat that kind of uh, food that's gone off? Uh, you're going to give us an illustration of it that you're going to be Gunner Ivor Hansen of the 3- 3- 311th Brigade Royal Field Artillery. For dinner,
0: we had fish of doubtful species, and afterwards, we, new recruits, were inoculated at the camp hospital. The doctors pinched up the flesh on my bicep and plunged into it its needle in no uncertain manner. But for 48 hours, our duties were excused. The effects of it makes me feel sick and miserable, and I cannot raise my arm, which is stiff and too painful to touch. Over the hospital door, a wit had penciled Dante's forlorn phrase, All hope abandon ye who enter here. Anyone requiring medical aid must report to the orderly at night and parade, if he is able, at eight on the following morning. This is unsympathetically known as the parade of the sick, lame and lazy.
1: Did you go on sick parade a lot? I
0: never went on sick parade,
1: actually. Hmm.
0: It is said that the medical restoratives at the hospital are very limited in kind and that pills called number nines, gargles and bandages, are all a sick person may expect, whatever his ailments are. One of the doctors, a thin, irascible fellow, has served in the Indian Army for about 20 years and is said to suffer from ague. Such a place and period of service has fitted him admirably to deal with most old soldiers' tricks.
1: What do you mean by old soldiers' tricks? You mean, well, they're smelling the lead, it.
0: aren't they? They're uh, uh, they're trying to get extra days off. When I, at the one time, uh, I I boxed in the intercompany boxing, and uh, afterwards was told. Um, if you go sick, they'll give you a week off because, uh, you know, you've been punched in the head and stuff like that. So I did. And um, that's the only time I, I sort of worked the ticket. And I got a week off, uh, light duties for a week after after my fight.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, well, uh, it's very common. And I'm going to be 2nd Lieutenant John Stanifold, 7th Lancers. No, it's his change regiment. Because he got promoted, he got uh, commissioned. Uh, And he says this, Well, we've been having an awful lot of men shamming diarrhoea to get off parades. It's a favourite stunt because it's so difficult to disprove. However, our doctor, Murphy O'Connor, made light of difficulties. Four heroes came up to him him one morning when when there was a a long route march on for the battalion, all pleading the fierce, though intermittent, diarrhoea. So what does he do but sends over to the Army Service Corps depot for four plain white utensils of domestic earthenware. Now, nah, he says, you sit on these pots till the regiment comes back and then we'll have a look at your diarrhoea. He marched them over to the guard room, each with this little white pot under his arm and there in the cells these four great ruffians sat for three hours while a sentry mounted guard over them with a fixed banner when the battalion returned there wasn't as much as would cover a farthing in any one of the pots (laughs) we've had no more malingerers on that tack since I, just love, I do love that idea. It's so great. Right, uh, trained or not, they'd be put on guard duties. So we're just moving on to this. Is pretty ramsh. It's, it's not really coherent structure to this uh, podcast. But well, already. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Gary. Uh, so uh, guard duties and uh, typical of this, uh, I look at the Liverpool Rifles who they had guard oh, duties yeah. on stations, tunnels. Co- don't you groan at I the can't word do Liverpool? <laughs> You can. Bridges, any vulnerable points, and they'd sleep in a variety of unusual places, waiting rooms, horse boxes, empty carriages, plate layers, huts around the railway, all sorts. And you're going to be Private Norman Ellison of the first sixth King's Liverpool Regiment. And late listeners, enjoy Gary's scouse accent. We were loaded with live ammunition and
0: under strict orders to fire it if our third wach challenge was ignored. I lived in a hut made of old railway—I can't do this—railway <laughs> sleepers at the entrance to uh, Merstham Tunnel, a dirty, smoky place that soon made us as black as sweeps. This duty was varied with night patrols between the, the airships ventilating the tunnel. They were situated on rough, common land, pathless and lonely. I was on patrol one dark night when suddenly, behind a clump of firs, I saw the movement of an indistinct white patch and heard heavy breathing. A face, I thought to myself. I challenged, and again. A third challenge was ignored, so with my heart in my mouth, I lunged at the face with my bayonet. A cow rose to her feet and made the night hideous with a justifiable protest.
1: Now, there's a, the number of stories we've been comforted in preparing a book, Laugh or Cry, which should be out... Uh, well, I don't know when it'll be out. Uh, it's not finished yet, is it? Um, is a new, So we've got another one here that I'm going to read by Private William ben- Benham. Of the 31st Royal Fusiliers. And uh, he'd been put on guard in a haystack. It was. Uh, they, 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 yeah, it's they, used to the horse fodder. It's not requisitioned just random it. haystacks. No, they requisitioned this one for horse fodder. And as it's the army, because they requisitioned it, they put a guard on it. And, and but William Benham says this It was a quite pitch dark, cold night. I had the turn from 10 until midnight. I must have been on guard about an hour. I'd paced round this haystack several times in the drenching rain with a ground sheet cape over me. Got back to the hut and stood listening, trying to see anything. Then I saw something. I'm sure there's something there. Something moved. Halt! Who goes there? Nothing happened. No answer. I'm sure I could see something moving again. Yes, there's something moving. Halt! Or I fire. No answer. So I fired. There was an awful bellow. Yep it was another <laughs> cow <laughs> now um one soldier this is uh, back to defaulters he visited the uh, which we presumably where these people who shoot cows end up um and uh, he, <laughs> he he gets a very special educational opportunity and uh, you're going to be gunner Ivor hansen of 311th brigade royal field artillery but you can't remember what accent you had for him
0: okay I seized the opportunity of, of inspecting the cells and read the elaborate pornographic prose and poetry on the grey walls. They were profusely illustrated and were legacies of a legion of former defaulters. From that abominable accumulation of filth, which I found debasing and disturbing, but alluring, one might obtain a depraved, distorted, yet complete
1: <laughs> knowledge of sexual intercourse. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, um, oh, well, well, we come to the end of this one because this is sort of recruitment and a bit about the life, the sort of um, what, what, what? One figure do you think dominates a battalion?
0: Well, above the recruits, above the NCOs, the instructors, and and, and even above the officers. In Pete. some Let's ways, be clear, junior, even above the officers,
1: junior officers definitely
0: was the intimidating figure of the regimental sergeant major. Now, once more, you're going to be Captain Randolph Cho of the 10th Essex Regiment.
1: And he's telling the story of uh, his regimental sergeant major. So uh, he starts with that. "God bless my soul, ejaculated regimental sergeant major Cooper, an incarnation of the standardised British version of the great god Mars. As he surveyed his flock of lambs on the parade ground behind the barracks, I don't know what the army's coming to nowadays. Look at that lot of adjectival. I think he means something rude there. Sewers! How's a mortal man ever going to turn them into soldiers? Well, I suppose you've got to take it or leave it. Now, how do
0: they do it, Pete? What What is the process of how training? How do
1: they do it, Gary? If only there was some sort of podcast that could tell how us. How do they
0: turn you know young innocents like me
1: into soldiers, Pete? I don't know. They didn't do a very good job with you oh, actually. I didn't actually <laughs> Thinking about, I might not be the best example of no, that. How did somebody, a young, callow Durham lad like Chris Carley, be turned into the steely-eyed, determined, physical monstrosity? That is Chris Carley.
0: Well, on that high note, we're going to end today's <laughs> podcast. And the next pod- podcast will be the subject uh, sorry, the process of training will be the. Su- oh, I can't say this. nonsense. Liberly flop flop flop. The next Trendy podcast flop, is flop, about flop. training, Pete.
1: <laughs> is it? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Gary. You've been excellent today. And I've only made about 12 mistakes.
0: I made one. That was coming here. Cheers, Pete. Cheers,
1: mate. <coughs>